0: there are two men two men who are standing two men who are praying two men who return home and yet there is some great distinctions as we'll observe as we look more closely at this parable the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector the parable of the Pharisee and the publican I'd like to Notice three things primarily about this parable. First of all, the purpose for which it was spoken in verse 9. And then in verses 10 through 13, Jesus will illustrate the point, the the focus of the parable with, with two men. And then Jesus himself brings the parable to an end with the conclusion. And we'll try to add some points of application at the end. So first of all, the aim of the parable... And he, Jesus, spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So this parable is told to those, number one, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and number two, treated others with contempt. Jesus is speaking to those, first of all, that trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That word Trusted there means to be so convinced that one puts confidence in something. So in our text, it would be some are so convinced of their good deeds and piety that they put confidence in themselves, that they are righteous before God. And so often when you see an attitude of of trusting in oneself, you're also going to find that same attitude of treating others with contempt the word contempt here means to show by one's attitude or manner of treatment that another person has no merit or worth. It means to reject or despise. So some are so convinced of their righteousness that they cannot place themselves among those requiring God's mercy, but rather despise and reject such persons. So in other words, Jesus is condemning an attitude that looks at themselves and observes reasons why they are right with God, and others, and observes reasons why they are not right with God. Now, it's this attitude that Peter would condemn in Acts chapter 4. In verse 11, Peter said, This is the stone, speaking of Jesus, which is set at naught. The same word in our parable. Treat others with contempt or despise others. This is the stone which was set at naught. Despise. Set at naught of you builders which has become the head of the corner. So these men that cried out for Christ to be crucified, they were self-righteous. They felt they were right with God. And they treated Jesus with contempt. They despised Jesus. Now, this is the exact opposite of, as, um, as to how Christians are described. In Philippians chapter 3, we have a threefold description of a Christian. Paul writes, for we are the circumcision. We are the, the people of God, those that, that God's Spirit has worked in our hearts. We are the circumcised in heart, number one, who worship God in the Spirit. So the Spirit of God inflames our spirit, our human spirit, so that we worship God. We we acknowledge that He is worthy. We see in Jesus that He is worthy of adoration. He's glorious. And therefore, we worship God in the Spirit. And we rejoice in Christ Jesus. We make our boast this morning in Christ Jesus. We are the circumcision. And thirdly, And have no confidence in the flesh. We're not trusting in ourselves that we are righteous. Not if we're children of God. It's not that we we never struggle with these areas. but, But we recognize ultimately and fully our salvation must be in the person and work of Christ. We have no confidence in our flesh. Because when we put confidence in our flesh, we fail and fail miserably. When you place your confidence in your ability, what is the end? Well, it's dishonoring to God, and it always leads to confusion. For example, if I attempt to preach this morning in my own ability, it's going to be a miserable failure. If I try to raise my children in my own ability, it's going to end in disappointment. And you fill in the blank, whatever it might be. Our confidence is not in the flesh. It's not in our own ability. It is in God, what God has purposed to do and what God through His Spirit does within us. That's a hard lesson to learn, but God is faithful to bring us to that point where we acknowledge that we have no reason to boast in our own strength or ability. Paul learned this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 8 and 9, God would teach Paul this lesson, not to put confidence in the flesh. Again, even as Christians, we have a sinful tendency to rely upon our own perceived strength or our perceived wisdom. So what does God do? God strategically places us in circumstances to show us our utter dependence upon Him. Have you been there? Live long enough and you will again and again and again. So Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. It appeared as if we were going to die in our service toward Christ. There was no way out but we have the sentence of death in ourselves. That. What is God doing? Why would Paul be brought to the place that it it appeared as if he was going to die and there was no way of, of escape? What is God doing? That. Here's what God is doing. Here's the purpose for which God orchestrated Paul's situation so that he was going to die and he had no way to escape. There was no exit. That we should not trust in ourselves. So would we not depend upon our own ability? Paul said, there's nowhere to go. It's over. So that his only confidence was in God. That we should not trust in ourselves, but... All right, here is the object of his confidence. But in God, listen to this, which raises the dead... That's the kind of God we're serving. Yeah. You say, well, you don't understand my circumstances. I don't, but I know that God raises the dead. And if He can do the greatest, then certainly He can care for you and your situation. The greater to the lesser. I'm in this trial. I'm in this difficulty. God is teaching you not to trust in your wisdom, not to trust in your might, not to trust in your reasoning but to trust in His power, in His goodness, and His faithfulness. If God raises the dead, He can help you in whatever trial you're facing. So Jesus is speaking this, to this, this parable to those that trusted in themselves that they were righteous. We're righteous and therefore treat others with contempt. So let's notice the parable is illustrated with, with two men. Really two opposites, even though there were similarities. So first of all, verse 10, two men. So two men went up into the temple to pray. That's really where the similarities end. So two men went up to the temple to pray. So the one, a Pharisee. So let's think about the Pharisee in verses 11 and 12. So the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. See, he despises others. He despises the publican. Notice he trusts in himself that he's righteous. Verse 12, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So He he's, is a perfect illustration of what it means to trust in yourself that you're righteous and to treat others with, with contempt. So he stood. That phrase there, he stood. Let's see. Stood and prayed thus with himself. It, it's somewhat ambiguous in, in the original. It could mean that he stood by himself. It could mean, as we read here, he stood and And pray thus himself. It could very well be both are true. He stood by himself and he prayed about himself. See, the word Pharisee means a separate, a separated one, separatist. They were separated from all others because of their own righteousness. So here he is. He's he's standing by himself because he cannot associate with people that he holds with such contempt. Now, we have to understand that in in Jesus' day, Pharisees were actually respected. They were looked upon, this Jewish sect, as people that that went above and beyond even the call of of God's Word. They were well-respected. And yet we recognize that that they had a holier than thou attitude. And that was true of this Pharisee. He, he had this holier than thou attitude, therefore, he could not mingle with others because he was superior to them. And you see that in his prayer. In fact, when he prays, he uses you know, the pronoun I five times. So he's praying really about himself. In fact, as you read, this prayer of the Pharisee, it sounds like another prayer, not a prayer. It sounds like uh, another speech that's found in the Bible. It sounds like someone else that was speaking about their accomplishments. Do you, can, you, can you think of anybody that, that used similar language? It's an Old Testament character. He's a king. He's a pagan. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, he he walked there in the royal palace of Babylon and he spake, It's not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. So this Pharisee, this religious Pharisee, he sounds very similar to a pagan king. And in fact, they were both pagan. One just had a veneer of, of religion. But they were both trusting in their own ability, trusting in their own power and might. So he stood and he prayed with himself, prayed about himself. I tithe of everything that I own. I I go far beyond what God requires. And I fast twice each week, which again, God required fasting one time a year. He fasts twice a week. And yet he's trusting in his fasting. He's he's trusting in his tithing to make himself right with God. So that's the, the Pharisee. And he despises others because he's not like them. And in one sense, he's probably correct. Externally, anyway... I'm not an extortioner. I haven't committed adultery. I'm not even like this publican. So let's think about the publican that's illustrated, the tax collector. So if the Pharisee was well-respected by society, the the tax collector, the the publican, was despised. They were despised because of their greed and their association with non-Israelites. And they were regarded in Jewish circles, as being unclean. It's been said that the system of taxation allowed a tax collector opportunity to line his own pockets through unfairness. So not only was he looked upon as a traitor taking money from his own people to give to to Rome, he would also line his own pockets. So in our day, no offense to anyone, I'm just saying the perception, okay? Okay. And our day, lobbyists are sometimes viewed as dishonest and unethical. They're hired guns to make large profits by serving the interest of large corporations. The perception. So if you're a lobbyist, I'm not necessarily saying that's true of you. I'm saying the perception. So the tax collector, he's despised. Notice, who he's standing far off as he prays. Verse 13, and the publican standing afar off. So you have two men that are standing, probably both standing aloof from everyone else. And yet the publican is standing afar off because not of his pride, but because of his humility. At this point, he's come under conviction by, by, by God. He feels to be unclean. He feels to be What other people think that he is. So he stands afar off. But notice his prayer God be merciful to me, a sinner. He's smiting his breast. He's calling out to God God be merciful, be propitious, be favorably inclined toward me. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And the original is actually, God be merciful to me, the sinner. He recognizes his own sinfulness and his desperate need of God's grace and forgiveness. But hasn't this been the cry of sinners transcending cultures and times, century after century, millennia after millennia, have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. So Jesus is illustrating what it means to trust in yourself that you are righteous and to look upon others with contempt, to despise others, to reject others. And Jesus brings this this parable to a nice, clear conclusion in verse 14. And by doing so, he stresses a point that's found throughout the Gospel of Luke, actually from the beginning of the Bible to the end. It's, It's this great reversal by God. It's a reversal of status and honor. So Jesus, he shows us the the, the application, I tell you, this man, which man? The publican. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So both men went to church. Both men were engaged in, in the activity of worship. And then church ended. They both, both went back home. But the publican went home justified. He came to church, to the temple. He came in condemned, and he went home justified. Miracle of miracles. Now the Pharisee came to the temple condemned, and he went home condemned. Oh, the great reversal. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's how all of us are made right with God. Justified. All of us, at one point in our experience, have been condemned. If we haven't trusted in Christ, we're under condemnation. We're under wrath. However, Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. No condemnation. Well, what happens between Romans 3.23 and Romans 8.1? Christ. His redemptive work. We all have sinned but we have been justified freely, declared righteous, made right with God freely, not by our tithing. Not by our fasting, not by whatever else you want to fill in. No, it's freely. It's freely, and to emphasize this point, freely by His grace. Because it was through the redemption, through what Jesus Christ has done. He has shed His blood. That's the payment that was made so that you and I that place our faith in Christ can be right with God. What greater blessing this morning than to be right with God? It's great reversal. Not only condemnation and justification, but notice the emphasis upon exaltation and humility or humility and exaltation. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased. Everyone that exalts himself. Everyone that considers himself to be right with God and better than others shall be humbled. At some point, humbled. Either humbled by grace or humbled in God's final judgment. There will be a loss of status and prestige. In other words, we'll suffer divine humiliation all those that exalt themselves, that think they are righteous with God, they trust in their own ability, God will cause them to be humbled. They will suffer divine humiliation. That's the great reversal by God. However, notice the contrast. The the other side. Conversely. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. He that humbles himself in a, in a favorable sense, who recognizes God is God, and, and we are dependent upon God. We have no ability. We have nothing to make ourselves righteous before God in and of ourselves. To the person that humbles himself before God, he shall be exalted in a favorable sense. God will humble the proud and exalt the humble. And again, this is found throughout the Gospel of Luke. It begins in the opening chapter in, in Mary's Magnificat. He has showed strength with His arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He hath sent empty away. It's a great reversal by God. Or in Luke 6.20, the Beatitudes and the Woes. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are they that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Do you see the reversal? Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when men shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast you out, and cast... Out your name is evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. But woe unto you that are rich. For I have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full. For you shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you and all men shall speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. How important is this principle of humbling yourself that you might be exalted by God? Jesus said the same thing in the parable of the wedding feast in Luke 14. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So God exalts those who humble themselves with spiritual and eternal joy and thankfulness for what God has done. So that's our parable. Let's try to look at a few points of application. Number one, let me, let me speak to the saints. Saints, believers, children of God. If you're born again, you're a saint. Are you guarding yourself from a Pharisee-like attitude? A Pharisee-like attitude. Okay, we as Christians, we can, we can fall into that attitude. Pharisee-like attitude reveals itself in subtle ways. Virtue signaling. Treating the self-righteous with contempt. I can be guilty of that. I despise self-righteous people. Well, I'm despising others, right? Belittling those that we think might be immature in their doctrine of salvation. I mean, there's a host of ways, right, that we can have a Pharisee-like attitude. But let's consider two contexts in which believers might fall into this Pharisee-like attitude. First of all, in the context of the church. The context of the church. Say, so, no, that that could that could never happen in church. Well, it happened. Um, Throughout the New Testament epistles, it happened with the disciples, the early disciples. Listen to to what happened in Luke chapter 9. So Jesus has just talked about going to the cross and dying. Then I'm sure they're probably grieving at this point, wondering, what's happening? Well, actually, here's their response to, I'm going to go and die. Then there arose a reasoning among themselves, which of them should be the greatest? That's... That's right embarrassing to even read, especially when, if you're like me, I can place myself right there among them. Maybe I wouldn't be so overt to express it that way, but the tendency's there. Which would be the greatest? See, it's true. I think that we don't mind being called a servant or even calling ourselves servants, but We get rather upset when somebody treats us like a servant, right? I'm a servant. I'm a servant of the church. Okay, do you mind um, cleaning the toilets uh, this week? What? Who are you to ask me to do something so menial? Um, Why Why would that be a problem? Because I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. So Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him, and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Who's the greatest? The one that has this childlike demeanor and faith. And by the way, we never get to the place where we no longer should have this childlike demeanor and attitude. Okay? So sometimes we think, well, that, that's, that's talking about conversion. No, it's talking about the Christian life. Now, there's a place where, yes, we spiritually mature, but at the same time, we're always dependent upon the Lord, like children are dependent upon their parents for sustenance and help. So it can happen in the church. Who is the greatest? So again, I don't think we would articulate that, but do we ever struggle with that attitude? Who's the greatest? That's a Pharisee-like attitude. Paul had to address that in Corinth. Listen to 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who maketh thee to differ from another? All right, if there's anything at all this morning pleasing to God in our life, in our understanding, in our behavior, in our character, why is that? What about in our gifting? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Well, I... The the answer is is obvious. Who makes makes you different from another? God. The good qualities. What do you have that you haven't received? Everything I received has come from God. Anytime I show humility to my wife, it's, it's because of God's grace. If I'm able to serve in the church, it's because of God's grace if I'm able to preach to you this morning without wanting a little bit of self-glory or a lot of self-glory, it's going to be by God's grace because innately it's not in here. Well, if I understand something about the doctrine of salvation, I recognize it's really by grace. God really did choose me before the foundation of the world and I really know what that means. It's because of God's grace. So I'm not going to despise others if they don't have the same degree of understanding that I have. Whether it comes to the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church, whatever it is, whatever we've received that's honoring to God, it's because God has blessed us with it. I can't have a pharisaical attitude. Maybe you've been invited to a, 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 to a, a friend's church or to a special meeting. You went to a conference and maybe people didn't do things just like you did. And, it, and it's easy. It's easy for us sometimes to think this is wrong, this is wrong, and this is wrong. What about the fact that this was right, this was right, this was right? There was a lot right. And no, bonk, 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 this is wrong. What is it? What's wrong with these people? See, we can creep into that Pharisee-like attitude. At least I can. Maybe you have experienced that. Now, if you did receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? In other words, why are you acting like God didn't give it to you? Why are you boasting in your own ability? See, it can creep into the church. And our interaction with one another, and our responsibilities that we have, and our gifting. It might be like, uh, well, God, I want revival to come. I want people to be converted and the only way I'm going to be happy, God, is if you use me to do it. Well, we want to be used by God. Certainly. We ought to pray in that that manner. I didn't think it was uh McShane when he 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 went off on a trip years ago, you know, and uh while he was gone, revival broke out in the church. He got back, he was happy that God used someone else. I was visiting a church that that uh that I pastored and they've got a faithful brother now that's preaching every Sunday and, and I was there on Thanksgiving and they were having a Thanksgiving service and, and they were talking about how thankful they were for Brother Jim, how he faithfully preached the word. And I was sitting there thinking, well, I did this for 12 years. Pharisee-like attitude. Hey, don't I get a pat on the back? It's not about us, is it? So it, it, this Pharisee-like attitude. So therefore, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Let us be careful that we don't have the Pharisee-like attitude. Standing aloof because we're better. See, there's no place in the church for anyone standing far off. Not the publican. Not the Pharisee. Not if we've come to faith. There's no place for standing afar off for for any believer. Listen to Ephesians 2. And that he, Christ, might reconcile both unto God. Speaking of Jews and Gentiles, these two ethnic groups. They've been reconciled both unto God in one body by the cross having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. So let us be careful that we're not like the Pharisees, standing aloof because we're better than others. And this morning, please don't be like the tax collector. If you've come to faith, you're not a second-class citizen in the house of God. Say, what about my past? I don't care. Have you come to faith in Christ? There's no need to stand afar off. I recognize in conversion, there's a place for beating our breasts. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I can't come near others. I'm sinful. Oh, but you've come to faith and we warmly embrace you as Christ Jesus our Lord has. Right, church? Yeah, we're we're wanting our... Churches to be places where the gospel is preached and the Spirit is at work, and hearts are being broken, and people are coming to faith in Christ. Amen. Not just church people or people that have attended church. We want people that have been broken by sin to come to Christ and recognize you're you're not a second class citizen. Your past doesn't make you have to stand afar off. You don't have to come and sit on the back row and leave when singing uh, starts at the end of service. You can stay for fellowship. You can come right here in the middle of us and carry on the conversation with the rest of us. Church, let us be careful that we don't have a Pharisee-like attitude that would make someone feel like they have to stand afar off. And then the church can have a Pharisee-like attitude in the context of evangelizing. The Pharisee standing by himself. Now, God has called us to be holy. There's no argument with that among Christians. And we must navigate our pursuit of holiness without compromise. But at the same time, loving the lost. And here's sometimes where when we see the, the horrible state of our culture, it's, it's so easy, it is for me, to become insulated. I mean, that sometimes can be the safest route to follow. I'm not going to compromise my faith and holiness or my home or even the church because we just hope that we don't have to deal with people out there and get our hands dirty. But friends, we must pursue holiness and at the same time pursue the sinner. Holiness with love with empathy, with a burden for souls, souls, eternal souls, perishing souls, who must believe in Christ. And it's that gospel that God has entrusted to us. I think Jesus, I know Jesus. He he made this point clear in his prayer in John 17. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. So don't take us out. Protect us from evil. Satan is real. He's a roaring lion. He's seeking to devour us. That's true. We've got to be wise. Certainly we have to be wise as we pursue holiness. But we have to be loving as we reach out and communicate the gospel to the lost. I remember several years ago when one of my daughters, she was in college, local college, and she called me one day and she said, "Uh, Dad, can do you have an extra Bible that I can have? And I said, certainly, honey, I have an extra Bible. Why do you need an extra Bible? And she says, well, I'm meeting someone at school for lunch. I said, well, that's wonderful. Um, She said, yeah, I need to give them a Bible. I said, they don't have a Bible? What, you know, what's up with that? And she said, well, this person's an atheist. And I said, ho, 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 you're having lunch with an atheist? I'm not so sure about this, honey. You know, because my fear was... That Abby, by the end of the day, would be an atheist. She would recount her faith, apostatize, and my little girl would be lost. But she responded, "But Dad, isn't that what you taught us?" Okay, um, let me let me think about this for a moment. So, yeah, I have a Bible. Certainly, I'm not talking about sacrificing children who aren't ready to communicate the gospel, but At the same time, maturing to the place that we can. In fact, is there a safer environment to share the gospel with the lost than even our own home? Having someone over for dinner that's an unbeliever and using that opportunity to communicate the gospel? This same daughter I'm speaking of, she's brought, she's brought a lot of people over for family devotion. It would probably shock you, and you might tar and feather me out of Huntsville if you knew the people that we've had at family devotion. Not because I invited them, but she brought them. But it's a safe environment. It's one that we can control. So we have to be careful that we don't have this Pharisee-like attitude when we're evangelizing, that we're not like the Pharisee who's standing afar off. So you talk with your elders, your pastors, talk with one another. It, it's, it is a challenge to know how to pursue holiness and pursue sinners and to remain light and salt without compromising biblical principles but the Bible's clear at the same time that if we've been entrusted with the gospel we're to communicate that gospel both to those in the church and to those Outside of the church. So that's my address to the church. Let me address sinners now. By sinners, I don't mean that any of us here are sinlessly perfect, but I'm talking about those of you that haven't trusted in Christ. The Bible is filled with encouragements to us, promises. trust in Christ and the blessings that flow out of that faith. So the gospel is good news. It's good news for hell-deserving sinners. I love the gospel of Luke. I love all the gospels. I love the gospel of Luke for this reason. It's a gospel for the outcast, for the marginalized, for those whose lives have been wrecked by sin, like Pharisees. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus keeps ministering to publicans, I might have said tax, uh, publicans and, and sinners. So just, just listen to, to his compassion and his willingness to save those that trust in him. So Luke 5, 27. And after these things, Jesus went forth and saw a publican. All right, here's this social outcast, right? This marginalized, this, this person that no one wants anything to, to do with. No offense to anyone here this morning if you've engaged in this in this past week, but maybe you're the person standing at a street corner with the sign, God bless, I need food. Okay? Sometimes, oh, that's, that's the publican in our society. That's, that's the leper. I don't know. You, you think of that person that sometimes we look down upon. Well, when Jesus saw a publican, he was named Levi. He's also known as Matthew, he became an apostle. He wrote one of the New Testament books. So he's sitting at the seat of custom, and he said unto him, follow me. Jesus said to him, follow me. And he left all rose up and followed him. You talk about effectual calling. Follow me. Bam! The Spirit of God. Okay. I'll follow you. I love you. You're awesome. Yeah. And so Levi, how does he respond? He made a great feast in his own house. I wonder what he's going to do with this. What's going on? He's making this great feast. And there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with him. He gets all of his comrades together. Hey, come over. I got something I want you to hear tonight. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Well, what are you doing? What's, what's up with this, this one that claims to be the Messiah? He's actually having table fellowship with, with the outcasts, with the marginalized, with people that are known sinners. And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, we, we see a physician Obviously, maybe a checkup just to make sure everything we- uh, is okay. But, but even in that, we, we want to make sure that, that we're being checked out in case there's some type of illness that needs to be brought to light. For me, um, I have to be really, really sick to see a physician. I'm not going to tell you how many decades it's been, but it's been a long time. But if I get to that point, get me to a doctor. If I collapse right now, Get me to a doctor, okay? 911. Something's wrong. The preacher just collapsed. Well, we we see a physician because we're sick. When you feel well, you're not thinking about the physician, right? You're thinking about ball games, you're thinking about shopping, you name it. But when you're sick, you don't think of anything else but I want to get better. When you're rolled up in a ball in bed, you're burning up with fever got stomach issues you just want to be well right I had an uncle he was notorious if anybody had a sickness he would bring them aloe juice now you know put aloe plant on your hand or something for a burn but to drink it it was rough but I had returned from a trip overseas and I was having some real issues with my stomach And he brought it, and it was horrible, but I drank it. Because if it'll make me better, I'm willing to drink aloe juice. Okay, so they that are holding me, not a physician. Those that are sick. So Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous. He's the doctor. And he came to call those that are sick, that recognize their sickness, that recognize their sin. He has not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. To repent, to turn from your sin and embrace Christ. And Christ is so loving. He receives all that come to him in faith, that come to him seeking forgiveness. Happened with Levi, it happened with with Zacchaeus. You know that wee little man? Zacchaeus. He was a chief among the publicans, we're told in Luke 19. And he was rich. I wonder how he got rich. Well, he was a chief publican. And we read, and he sought to see Jesus. Now, I want to ask you a question, okay? I'm going to give you a test. Who is seeking whom? Well, let's read our text and find out. He sought to see Jesus, who he was. (laughs) It's easy. It's Zacchaeus, right? Partly. And he could not for the press, because he was of little stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying, that he was going to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house. Now what's the difference between the Pharisee who's fasting, he's giving his tithes, and and Zacchaeus who's saying, If I've taken anything, I restore it fourfold. The difference is he's not restoring fourfold because he's trusting in his restoration of what he had taken. He's trusting in the Lord, and this is an expression of gratitude. Jesus said unto him, This day of salvation, come to this house. For so much as he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Who's seeking whom? Well, they're both seeking one another. But I would say, based upon the teaching of Scripture, that Jesus' seeking is fundamental and foundational. His seeking us is what causes us to Seek after Him. What have I received that I was not given? How about you? Are you seeking this one Christ? Seeking salvation? Say, but I'm not like the sinners that you've been talking about. Boom, there's my point. Okay? You're guilty if you're thinking that. Mom and Dad raised me in the church. I went, I'm homeschooled for goodness sake. Yeah, you need salvation. We all need salvation. You don't want to stand before God on the last day and say, God, here's the reason why um, you should let me into heaven. No, it's because, yeah, we trusted in Jesus. That's not just third day. That's, that's, that's it, because I've trusted in Jesus. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. So come, you sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, love, and power. So in this parable, be encouraged by this. One went up to the temple condemned and he went home justified. Why can't it be said today that one came to the auditorium condemned and went home justified? It can be. It can be said. Trust in Christ. And go home justified. So in conclusion, in conclusion, let us all be mindful of this parable's blessing and curse. A blessing upon the humble, a curse upon the proud and self-sufficient. So let us humble ourselves. Let us put no confidence in the flesh. Let us trust in Christ. Let us empathize with others and be um, eternally exalted by God. So let's pray in closing.